Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. Hi, everyone. On today's episode, you'll hear my conversation with my friend Rafael Augustine about his experience as an immigrant in America and how he's working to put more diversity and accuracy into the stories we tell. My name is Rafael Augustine. I'm a writer on the TV show Jane the Virgin, and I am the executive director of La Leaf and the Youth Cinema Project. Oh, did I mention I am a formerly undocumented American? Well, sorry, not sorry. Tell us a little bit about your your story. My story is crazy because um, when I so when I was in high school, I was were you here? I was I was here in the United States in high school. Not uh, picture this. Like first of all, growing up, I always thought I looked like Zach Morris. Like <laughs> like I really did. It was crazy. Like. <laughs> So, so I modeled my high school career. He does career. not look like Zach Morris. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a Cholo Brown, better looking version of Zach Morris. Yes. So I always thought like, okay, I'm going to model my high school career after his. So I too decided to become the class president. And then I too became um, the prom king and, and the honor roll student. Then I applied to go to college and I discovered I was undocumented. So you had no idea, no idea before college that you were undocumented. No, until and how most, does that happen? Most undocumented. Did your students... mom just not tell you? Well, okay. So I knew we, I knew we were immigrants. <laughs> I mean, I knew we were immigrants. Right. I didn't know we were undocumented immigrants, and they didn't tell me because. And I asked my mom this a few years ago. I was mm-hmm. like, "Why did Why did you and Dad? Why didn't you guys tell me?" And she said this beautiful thing. She was like, "Because we didn't want you to grow up feeling different, mm. and because dreams should not have borders." Mm. My mom said that. I was like, I'm going to steal that, mom. <laughs> Dreams should not have borders. It's beautiful. And and that's why they didn't tell me. And I was just like, okay, so some kids can drive and get jobs and others couldn't. I just happened to be one that couldn't. <laughs> so wait, so how has your identity shifted at that moment? Did you feel a difference? Oh my God, yes. I was the all-American high school kid. Like, all-American. Like, I even dyed my hair blonde. It was crazy. <laughs> and then I'm like, wait, what? How, what? My gardener was legal and I wasn't. You know, that's amazing. So, did it prevent you from going to college? Like, where oh, did yeah. you? Yeah. So, obviously, like universities were like, "You're a perfect candidate. Please send us your real social security number." And I'm like, "What, mom? What does this mean?" <laughs> like, I had no idea. Wow. I think I even told my mom, like, "I can't be illegal. I'm the freaking prom king." Okay. <laughs> So yeah, my my all American like world just came crashing down on wow. me, and I got really depressed. Uh, that's when I discovered. Um, How old were you at this point? Eighteen. Seventeen. Um, and and seventeen. And what year ish was this? This was ninety eight. 97, 98, around there. I must have been actually uh, 16 because you usually apply like yeah, junior right. year. Yeah, right. I must have been 16. So uh, that's when I discovered that I didn't have a social security number. My parents did. Cause, so when they came to this country, my, my family told them, you need social security numbers to work. So they were errone- erroneously told that adults needed them. So they didn't get me one. Then the laws changed. Immigration laws changed. Right. So then my parents had social security numbers and I didn't. 
Um, somewhere down the line, my father took it upon himself to try to get me one. Um, and he even went to a federal building as an undocumented immigrant, like desperate, like my son needs a security number. Mm. Um, and they didn't give him one, but they gave him a tax ID number. So that's what I always had. And I didn't even know what this was. And this was, um, so if you're undocumented in the country, the way that you could still pay your taxes and still like contribute, they give you a tax ID number. You're not supposed to be here, but go ahead and pay your taxes. So I was was a senior in high school when I was like, hold on. The idea that there's no taxation without representation is what the American Revolution was founded on. And that's exactly what they're doing to like 11, 12 12 million undocumented Americans. Who, wow. who all pay. My parents paid and filed their taxes every year that they were in this country. They, they, they wanted to be American so bad. Mm. Like they filed their income tax, their payroll tax, their state tax, federal tax. Like, but they couldn't vote. That's, that's just crazy. Undocumented immigrants, like my parents, like myself and my brothers, we pay our taxes and we're not the only ones in this country. Despite the fact that I received no benefits from the federal government that pay my taxes is possibly one of the things that make me that makes me feel most American despite not having US citizenship or a green card. Right now there's 700,000 dreamers who have a job, go to school, pay their taxes. Why did they come here? Um well, <laughs> that's that's the even bigger question. Uh, my father is a pediatric surgeon who came to this country to work at a car wash. And my mother is an anesthesiologist who came to this country to work at Kmart. Wow. That's, that's crazy. So uh, that's been the great research and reflection of my life. Like, how did this happen? And I, I've narrowed it down to this moment. Like, when I was born, the first socialist president in my country's history, I'm from Ecuador, South America, um, his plane mysteriously was shot down midair. Um, this man was trying to nationalize our petroleum, which was the third largest uh, petroleum source in Latin America. Mm. Uh, The year that I was one year old, when I turned one years old, the first socially elected, the first socially elected president in Panama, his plane also magically was blown up midair when he tried to nationalize the Panama Canal, Mm. which was controlled by the, the United States. Uh, And both of these instances, uh, I do believe U.S. foreign policy totally redirected the history of countries in Latin America, including my own, um, and redirected the wealth that these presidents were trying to give back to their to their citizens and into pri- private hands. And I think that has been the long history of the United States. So when I look back at my life, uh, I truly have realized that I am just product of empire. Wow. And it, it took me so long because it was so much self-hate. I mean, I told you, I was like the all-American white kid. And I was like, uh... Get back in line, uh, get out of our country, uh, learn English, Wow! not knowing that I was speaking to myself. So then what was the process like after that? Are you a citizen right now? I, I am. Okay. Yeah. And so what was that process like? Your listeners you? can't call Homeland Security and get rid of me out of this podcast. <laughs> I am a U.S. American citizen. Thank you very much. I don't think those, those people are listening. <laughs> so don't worry. I think you're safe. Um, it So... Essentially what happened is we applied the, the quote unquote, the, the right way. And 15, 20 years later, wow. the immigration replied. So that's the thing where people say, uh, wait your turn. There is no real line. There is no real waiting your turn. 
um, there's it's it's such a broken system, and it literally took See, 15 now, years for people to reply to us. That's a lifetime. I have a question though. Yeah, because we hear so often it's a broken system. Yeah, is it broken or is it exactly the way the government wants it to be, where it's impossible for you to become a citizen or very very difficult? Do they want it that way? I feel like they want it that way. They do. And in fact, it's interesting because um, family reunification, which is how the immigration system is kind of um, focused on. Right. Uh, it was family reunification was specifically designed to to help white European immigrants and not help uh, immigrants of color. Unfortunately, or fortunately for me, um, it was immigrants of color who took advantage of family reunification more. The idea was if we just allow the same number of people uh, citizenship, it'll, the country will look the same. But over time, it was more Latin American and Asian and African immigrants who were applying. applying. And right now, what we're seeing is a reaction to that. And so Trump, whose wife, current wife, has uh, benefited from family reunification and whose parents have also benefited from family reunification. This is what he calls chain migration, This right? is what he's ca- now calling chain migration. The U.S. immigration system has changed over the years, but since 1965, there's been, you know, sort of a general idea that uh, a big part of the system rewards uh, what advocates would call family reunification. This bill says simply that from this day forth, those wishing to immigrate to America shall be admitted on the basis of their skills and their close relationships to those already here. Critics of that have said they've called it chain migration. Chain migration is bringing in many, many people with one, and often it doesn't work out very well. Those many people are not doing us right. They're saying that people are coming uh, to the country, they become citizens, and then they bring over too many family members, and it's hurting the country because it's taking away jobs uh, and other opportunities from native-born Americans. The lottery system and chain migration, we're going to end them. Under the current broken system, a single immigrant can bring in virtually unlimited numbers of distant relatives. Under our plan, we focus on the immediate family by limiting sponsorships to spouses and minor children. So he's Every time we have had any immigration system applied in the United States, it has always been a reaction to immigrants of color. In fact, the uh, Homeland Security, which used to be the Immigration Naturalization Services, started exclusively for Chinese immigrants. Mm. There's a guy, a a geographer, his name is E.J. Ravenstein, and he wrote over a century ago this thing called the Laws of Migration. But basically what it says is that there is an innate desire in most people to better themselves. And all of migration is based on that innate desire to be better and to do better. Oh, I agree with that. Definitely. I do too. Why else would you completely pick up your family, take this long journey to our country, however you need to get here, um, if it's not to better yourself, to better future generations to want to want a better life absolutely or or like my parents you learned the hard way that the american dream is not for you but for your children were they ever doctors in the united states no or what? no, no. When, when they got here um first the, the language barrier right. um second is like you kind of become uh 
slave to the minimum wage mm-hmm. <laughs> race, mm-hmm. you know. Um, the yeah, because you can't keep your head you, above you the water, right? You, you have to water. just keep going. So the best that they were able to do here was uh, become MRI technicians, mm. um, which was very funny because my father was arguing with the doctors assessing the MRI images, and my dad was always right because he, he was like he was smart, smarter than them as a pediatric surgeon. Um, and this is the great irony of our journey. Uh, my parents got to a place where they made great money as MRI technicians. They had the beautiful California ranch style home. They had the Porsches and the Mercedes. And one day my dad just said, I'm not happy. I was brought into this world to save children's lives. Your mother and I are moving back to Ecuador. (gasps) And they left. I just got goosebumps. They left it all behind. Wow. Just to go do that. Uh, I'm an only child, so I have abandonment issues now because they left me. Of course. Uh, But do you think (laughs) I have abandonment issues too and I'm not an only child? Oh, okay, good. It's very common. Um, But do you think that had they not left to go back, that you would have felt a certain amount of guilt? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. In fact, uh, I found out my dad tried to go back many years ago and my mom, who's a very traditional woman who wants to like be there for her husband, uh, that she took her first stand. As a modern American feminist, she was like, no, I'm not going back. You can go ahead and go back. I'm staying with my son. And she stayed. And, and my fa- my dad was forced to stay. So oh, I, yeah, yeah. So That's why my parents, they tried to go back, I guess, when I was uh, like 12, maybe. And my mom said, absolutely not. We made this huge sacrifice to come here. We're going to stick it out until, I guess, Rafa is successful. So let's go back to college. Yeah. You go to college. What are you studying? Uh, so no social security number, no access to financial aid. I went to the only place that would accept me, which is community college. Right. So I went to community college and I accidentally, so when you take your prerequisite tests, mm-hmm. you have to give your social security number at the top. Uh, so I didn't have one. So I made one up when I took my <laughs> math test. And then when I had to take my English test, I did the same thing. So I accidentally created two Raphaels at community college. One that was good at English and bad at math. The other one that was good at math and bad at English. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and I would tell my my like my teacher, my basic math t- college teacher, I was like, I don't belong in this class. He's like, I know, son, nobody does. <laughs> You're like, no, but I was like, damn you! Um, and I didn't know. I come from a long line of uh, doctors and and lawyers, so I was like, maybe that's my route. I didn't know what my route would right. be. And in community college, because of my immigration number, I started taking a million classes just to pass the time, right? Mm. So I was like in anthropology, I was in political science, I was in chemistry. Why did I ever take chemistry? Uh, I I took all these classes and ended up in the very, very, very last class that I could possibly take because I took all the other ones. That was a theater class. And I was like, man, I don't want to do theater. I don't want my cholo friends to beat me up if they see me acting. <laughs> it's so crazy. Uh, and then... This this is a very very funny anecdote. I my teacher's like go do go do the school play. I do the school play because I, I was on document. I have nothing else to do. Um, there's like these judges that watch these college plays. Uh, they come. They nominate me to go to a regional competition. I'm on document. I have nothing else to do. So I was like, fuck it. I'll go to I'll go to the competition. <laughs> I go to this competition which includes four states and Utah. It's technically five states, but is Utah state? I'm still I'm still debating. Uh, I I do this regional competition and I win and they fly me out to um, the Kennedy Center to perform two blocks from Homeland Security oh wow <laughs> like what am I doing wow. why am I purposely going to that wow so just showing up at the front door basically just like, showing up hey. to the front door um, and and in the 
14, 15 years that my parents had been undocumented in this country and that they had, they worked like seven days a week. They never took a vacation. They took their first vacation to fly out to Washington, D.C. to watch me perform at the Kennedy Center. Oh, so it's so beautiful. I was uh, in this little competition. um, I won an acting award uh, for comedy. And I thought it was very ironic because it was very sad. Our circumstances were very sad at that time. Um, When we flew back, I was totally maxed out on my college credits uh i didn't know what i was gonna do and there were two envelopes waiting for me when we got home and you can't even write this it's so sappy one was uh my acceptance to ucla and my other was my green card my permanent residency wow and that was the day my life changed wow thank you all so much for always being there for me especially when my parents couldn't because of our stupid immigration issues and to my mom, who flew out here from South America <laughs> to be here. <clears throat> and to my dad, who unfortunately has to watch this on live stream from Ecuador. Thank you so much for sacrificing everything to come to this country to give me a shot at a better life. And if I leave you all with anything today, please let it be this. Learn Spanish. Spanish or Tagalog, or Mandarin, because the immigrant students of today are going to be paying for your social security checks tomorrow. Thank you, Mount Love you all. I figured, you know, theater got me this far. This is the route that I'll continue to, to pursue. And also, my dad always wanted to work at UCLA Medical. So I, I, went to, I only applied to UCLA to try to, like, live his dream. Unbelievable. Yeah. Now... Uh- this was a time when, before ICE, right? INS existed, and there was an enforcement piece of INS, but ICE, the way we know it now, right. never, that, that didn't exist. So did you live in a fear that I would think a lot of immigrants feel right now, this sense of fear that they're going to, if they're not documented, that they're going to feel you know, cautious about yeah. where they go and traffic violations and simple things. And now, of course, we're seeing that ICE is picking people up, you know, in the most horrifying situations, like dropping their children off at school or at the, at the hospital if they're in the emergency room. Uh, really horrible, horrible situations. Do, but you, you, and, and let me just say, um, ICE, they've been really galvanized by Trump, right? So it's, it's this weird group of people who are, who are t- taking it upon themselves to, I guess, keep America white. Um, most of the new progressive female leadership that have joined Congress ran on an uh, Abolish ICE platform, which I think is beautiful. Well, another part of the anti-immigration marches is to abolish ICE. It's a growing call from Democrats. No more ICE! No more ICE! We should protect families that need our help, and that is not what ICE is doing today, and that's why I believe you should get rid of it, start over, reimagine it. We need to occupy every airport. We need to occupy every border. We need to occupy every ICE office until those kids are back with their parents, period. Um, I I did grow up uh, afraid, very afraid. Back then, there wasn't much discussion about what an undocumented immigrant was. I thought I was the only one. Mm. Like, I really, really did. I never knew of anybody like me. Um, the hardest thing I ever had to do was come out of the undocumented closet to my white professor. And I, I equate that to someone having to come out of the closet if they're if they're gay, because how people react to you is how you're going to go on to live your life. Are you going to be a confident like pillar and um, 
uh, of your community or or are you going to like repress yourself and why did you feel that you had to tell him well when i was at community college um uh it was it was she lisa reinhardt one of my great mentors in life i i did start i started doing speech and debate i found my i actually started writing and finding my voice writing speeches and giving them um and i got nominated to go to an international uh speech competition in prague to represent my school wow so when she told me she told me with this great joy like we selected you to go to prague and i was like i can't go oh. <laughs> She was like, what do you mean? What oh. broke college student does not accept the trip to Europe? Like, you're out of your freaking mind. And I just looked at her, at this woman who I'd developed this bond with, who has been like a mother figure to me. And I was like, do I tell her? Do I tell her? I want to tell somebody. I need to tell somebody. So I did. So I told her. I was like, I can't go because if I go, I can't come back. And then she was like, wait, what? And that was my first discussion with somebody about what, what it was to be undocumented. And she could not believe it. Like, she started call, calling lawyers. She called the school administration. Wow. No one knew what to do with me. Like, no one, no one, no one. I feel like now there's a movement among Latinx students, like, undocumented and unafraid. Uh, they've shared their stories. They're coming forward. But back then, that didn't exist. So I was, I, I lived in great fear, I think. Yeah. I think the interesting thing about ICE is it is... Almost as if we created this department to give ex-military jobs. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Because every, you know, I've been to detention centers throughout the country. And every time I go to a detention center, I like to try to have a heart-to-heart with an ICE agent. Just, just to hear their perspective. And most of the time, they have said to me, I'm not proud of what I do. But I have to get food on the table. I was in the military. There are not a lot of jobs for ex-military members. What am I going to do? What what choice do I have? Wow. So I think that this idea of abolish ICE will never really happen because it's employing a lot of our military. The sad, Here's the sad thing about what ICE is currently doing. Um, the undocumented immigrants that they are... Um, that they're gathering or kidnapping mm-hmm. or whatever you call it. Um, most of them don't have criminal records. And these type of appre- um, apprehending mm-hmm. uh, undocumented immigrants without criminal records have doubled since uh, since Obama. So Donald Trump is like really <laughs> like has, is, is, is leading a war against undocumented Americans. Do you know about the 35,000 bed quota? No, but it it doesn't sound unlike our prison system. What is the quota? 35,000 beds have to be filled. So I think a lot of how we are apprehending immigrants has to do with filling this bed quota. (sighs) Which is so, so, so upsetting. If you think about your story, right, and your parents coming here to give you a better life, to to then be a number uh, in order to fill beds. I think about, uh, we were talking earlier about the journalist Naomi Klein. Mm-hmm. And she, she once said this um, this great thing. She said many great things. She said, um, you always have to ask yourself, what's the incentive? So what is the incentive of keeping people healthy? If there's so much money to keeping them sick in our current right. um, healthcare system. What is the incentive of 
keeping people or students educated if there's so much money in privatizing our education system. So what is the incentive of fixing our immigration system if there's so much money with 35,000 quotas of keeping people imprisoned? Perception-wise, how do you see the Trump administration and what they have um, put in place differing from what Obama did? Because, you know, Obama was called by by many immigrant activists the, the deporter-in-chief. Deporter yeah, he was. And I think um, I've analyzed that a lot uh, because as a my very first vote in this country was for Obama. Mm -hmm. When I was finally a citizen, I was able to vote. And he did let me down, especially with immigration. And what I think happened, if I'm not mistaken, is he really, really tried to bring the other side, the Republicans, to the table to try to have immigration reform. And the way he tried to do that was to show them that he was tough on immigration. So I think Obama started playing politics with our communities and it all backfired at the end because they never intended to work with him. And he learned that the hard way and we learned that the hard way. So I think he tried to make amends by uh, giving us DACA, um, yeah, the, the deferred action for early childhood arrivals. And I think undocumented students forced him into that because the immigration organizations and lobby, they weren't about DACA, but it was the students who rallied and actually protested Obama that forced his hand. So DACA for me has changed my life because now that I have been involved, I'm, I own my status. I'm not scared to tell anyone I'm undocumented. I know that I am a human, that I have power, and that I am a great example of any of anyone. I'm a good student, and I'm pursuing my college career. My college career now. When we won DACA in 2012, it was a big victory for the immigrant rights movement. It opened up a lot of doors for me. For example, I was able to get work authorization and get a, a decent job before I would do odd jobs, uh, construction, catering, sometimes not even get minimum wage. And because of DACA, I was able to get a decent paying job and support my family. I do think he was the deporter-in-chief. And I do... Um, I have, I have great pain that he did that to us, especially me, he, him being my first vote. And then Donald Trump came in and doubled down. He, yeah, he weaponized yeah, it. Yeah, he weaponized it. I also think down. there was a certain amount of we gave Obama a lot of credit because he didn't seem like a bad person that had... Um, hurtful policy that he yeah. wanted to put in place. Whereas I think with Trump, every move he makes is under the guise of of hurtful, right? So, so with Obama, I feel like we gave him the benefit of the doubt. And I think if the activist community in particular looked at that uh, that policy as being sort of overlooked the negative aspect because he was putting DACA in place and it did seem like he was doing trying to do the right thing. Um, uh, and 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 in hindsight, looking back, I'm upset that I didn't realize to the extent that 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 was going on, and that it took a president to come in um, who I felt was. Uh, you know, the white supremacist uh, to really make me acknowledge um, what Obama did to this the community. I, I think, and I feel a lot of guilt, no, to no, be honest, that I was not 
fighting this fight his his entire administration. Earlier on, yeah, me too. Uh, I, I think a lot of us feel that way. Uh, in fact, <laughs> I'm going to say something that I'm not sure if it's very controversial or not. But I keep wondering if the Democratic Party was supposed to die out a while back. Interesting. Be- because because when when the Clinton when Bill Clinton takes office, he really makes this into the Republican Party. Right. That that's what happens to us. Like, so who's speaking on behalf of the people? That's the question. And I keep wondering, like, wow, like, was the Democratic Party was were, were we supposed to just like die out and let a new party grow mm. that actually spoke on behalf of of the communities? And then Obama came. He was such a phenom like there was no like he's the great like he he was the card that no one expected right that that's he why he invoked Demo- hope so much hope and that's why the democratic party took back power however this idea that our politicians are run by corporations as well that should have died out a long time ago the republican party showed that that should have died out a long time ago and i think now especially with these new women going into congress and whatever happens in 2020, um, I'm hoping that there's a new party with a new platform that actually speaks on behalf of the people. Immigration shouldn't be this complex. In my opinion, anything that has to do with human rights, which I believe is a big part of our downfall right now, and not having any accountability for the violations that we are making, I don't think it should be this complex. I think if you gave – and that's why when people say it's the system is so broken, I, I think it was made to, to be like this. If we wanted it to be easy, we would make it much easier. People would have the ability to claim asylum. They would be allowed to go with their sponsors that are here. They would have their court dates. We would provide them with interpreters and legal representation and all of these things that an immigrant needs to be able to succeed in this process, this amazing process of a new life. And we just make it as complicated as humanly possible and i think that that's on purpose purposely purposely so and for centuries for centuries uh, the this goes back to the idea of corporations and slavery being tied and being part of our dna before we're even a nation uh because to me immigration truly is a labor issue um, when the pew hispanic research center discovered that deportation of undocumented immigrants happens most frequently during two times one when immigrants try to unionize or two right before payday. So wow. that is a way to control labor. The LA Times ran this amazing story about who rebuilt Katrina. These construction companies who went in there brought in Central Americans to work and they worked for like months and months for free. And their bosses were like, you'll get paid next month. You'll get paid next week. You'll get paid next week. Three months in, no one get paid. They all got deported. Who rebuilt Katrina? who benefited and who exploited that labor. That is the history of immigration in this country. It's no secret that many of the workers helping to rebuild the Gulf Coast are undocumented immigrants. But what's less apparent is how these workers are being employed. In many cases, Americans are using middlemen to shield themselves from the risk and cost of employing a foreign workforce. The hotel jobs were run by big, well-established companies. And yet, after an exhaustive search, NPR could not locate a single company or contractor willing to admit to being their employer. 
Not a single company willing to take responsibility for those Brazilian workers or their missing overtime pay. When Thomas Jefferson wrote uh, the the state of his letters on the state of Virginia, mm-hmm. he literally pointed out that the African is a, like a necessary evil, right? Because we need their their labor, but we don't want them here. That continues to this day. To this day, with the undocumented population among to us. To this day, and by the way, the left sort of paints it as that as well. The left says, "Well, who's gonna?" Who's going to go into the fields and fight? It's like, I I don't know if that's what you should be sort of building your entire platform, yeah. <laughs> advocacy for immigration on, right? And, and like, <laughs> it's so ridiculous. I say we give them 401k. Let's give these strawberry pickers 401k and we'll see. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what happens. We'll see how our blossoms. The, and this is not just the United States. Um, in ancient Greece, the only people who were not allowed to migrate freely, we're slaves. This this is, throughout human history, immigration truly is a labor issue. So you would think at this point we'd get it right. <laughs> yeah, you would right? think, but we continue to do all this BS purposely because who's benefiting, right? What, I, what's the incentive? It's always I, what's the incentive. I just don't want there to be hurtful policy. I don't think that's too much to ask. Yeah, you're right. And under this administration, it has gotten the worst we've ever seen it. I mean, the separation of children from their parents so they can go to separate camps i mean that's that's nazism the associated press detailed conditions inside a customs and border patrol detention center in clint texas where allegedly 250 infants children and teenagers are being held according to the ap there's not adequate food water or sanitation inside if you'd ever told me any time in my life that this country would sanction federal agents to take children from the arms of their parents, put them in cages, actually put them up for adoption. In Colorado, we call that kidnapping. Governor, you're right. It is kidnapping. And it's extremely important for us to realize that. If you forcibly take a child from their parents' arms, you are kidnapping them. And if you take a a lot of children and you put them in a detainment center, thus inflicting chronic trauma upon them. That's called child abuse. This is collective child abuse. Both of those things are a crime. And if your government does it, that doesn't make it less of a crime. One of my favorite questions that I am asked and to ask other people, and any time I meet with a politician, I always ask this question, this question of what keeps you up at night. For me, it's that thought of a child going to sleep and not knowing where their mother is. That idea that they traveled this long, long, long journey, this long way. And I would think would be so, you know, if you're a four-year-old, so excited about this new chapter, about not having to worry walking to school, to, to even be able to go to school and have a great education, then to get here and to have... Someone in a uniform rip you away from your parent and to throw you in a jail-like setting, I, I can't – that's what keeps me up at night. That idea that, that we are separating children, how is that not a human rights violation? Where is – These Well, obviously, the UN's not going to be able to help us now. But I mean, Amnesty International, who's helping us? The truth is that we have to help ourselves. And we have intentionally orphaned thousands of children. This country, 
that that's what the United States of America has done. Like, who are we? What are our values? Uh, the Chicago Tribune argues that we are a nation of kidnappers at this point. And I argue that we're worse than that because we have killed children. Children have died in detention centers. So we're actually worse than kidnappers at this point. A tragic image from the southern border reveals the grim reality facing many Central American migrants who make the dangerous journey. It shows a young father and his 23-month-old daughter who died trying to cross the Rio Grande in South Texas. They were found in shallow water a few hundred yards from where they tried to cross. The girl is still clinging to her father's neck. It's, um, this is shameful. We should all be ashamed, and we should be ashamed not just for this father and his daughter and the surviving members of this family but remember every american should know thousands of people have died attempting to cross into the united states the u.s customs and border protection has launched an investigation into a secret facebook group where thousands of border patrol agents posted sexist memes and joked about migrant deaths i mean being a storyteller you understand this when you are faced with the imagery of a child dying alone in detention. I, I just, I just don't understand. I just don't understand. You know, what's interesting. I, I just wanted to say that I, I've spoken to people at Amnesty International and they find that their work um, has gotten complicated because the majority of Americans are against family separation but they're still for the, incarcer the incarceration of people violating our laws when they come into this country. So that's the great problem that we have. We, we want both things at the same time. Yeah, and I think, I think this idea of... I think this idea of that we're trying so desperately to hold on to something that was never really part of this country to begin with is confusing a lot of American people, where th the narrative is so divided. And this is why I think what you do is so vital, um, because you are truly a storyteller. So and are you with this podcast. I'm, I'm <laughs> loving this. I'm loving this. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you for being here. But how important do you think is are, are telling these stories right now? You just reminded me of Victoriana. Victoriana, the Guatemalan undocumented uh, worker who worked in Trump's companies, who who came out, who said, hey, I am an undocumented worker and this president is like shitting on us and I work for him. And in fact, his management company got me my fake paper. So what he did was against the law. Um, she called me. So glad you brought that up. The hypocrisy, the hypocrisy, and and the 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 criminality of it all from his organization. Uh, she called me uh, three weeks before she came out with her story to ask me exactly what you said. She was so afraid, and she was like, "Should I share my story?" I'm like, "You, sh why are you asking me? I'm not. <laughs> right. I, I don't control who should and shouldn't tell their stories." But uh, your story is so worth hearing. I can't speak on the safety of you and your family, but we need to hear your story. So she was there for about five years, and what she is saying is that her supervisor physically assaulted her, threatened her constantly with deportation. Uh, she complained to the management at the highest level, uh, the general manager of the golf club. Nothing was done. And something that's very important, apparently the picture for her green card was taken inside of the club, 
And then one of the drivers drove her to a nearby town to pick up these fake documents, documents that uh, we have handed over to state authorities. And this is the environment until she said enough is enough. Victorina says she didn't show any paperwork when she got the job, but in 2016 she was suddenly asked for legal documentation. She says when she told her manager she didn't have it, he got his cousin to take her to a house in New Jersey to get documents, and that her manager himself paid the $175 fee for her fake documents. And where is she now? Do you know? They're they're in legal battle with with the Trump administration, with with the Trump organization. Um, they are in legal battle because they proved because after her, twenty other workers came out and said we are undocumented, and this company got us our papers to work here. So I want everyone to really think about that. Everyone that's listening right now, in the last two years, all we've heard from Trump is building the wall and deporting people that he feels are he is here illegally and yet this man who you know claims to be a billionaire was hiring undocumented immigrants in his facilities that he runs it's fucking crazy yeah 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 did he think it would never come out how do you think that he i don't think he ever intended to be president I think, uh, honestly, I mean, we're going to sit here and analyze the, the Trump family. And don't forget, he has pissed me off. He's pissed off the, my entire community. I'm a storyteller. And one day I'm going to tell his story. And if that's not his story, at least his father's story, who was the biggest welfare recipient, the biggest welfare queen in the, in the world was Fred Trump. And that's how they made all their money. But this man, I don't think ever intended to be president. I really don't. I I think he ran. He was trying to beef up his other companies. I'm sure he was in great debt internationally with with the Russians. And um, watch the video of when he it, takes his acceptance speech when he won. He is in such great shock. <laughs> he cannot believe that he won. He's like, how the hell did this happen? He, his face was all over our faces. <laughs> all, yeah. Yeah, he never wanted to be president. He he like Mitt Romney comes out and is like, this man is broke as hell. Have him show your the tax returns. Right. Uh, but now that he is president, now he's raping and looting the country. So how do you think we can overcome this super calcified partisan perspective that we have on an immigration? Um, I can tell you how I'm going to do it and why I intend to Great. do it. And that's through, through storytelling. Like the very first uh, thing I did coming out of UCLA was create a, a comedy show that spoke about my immigration story. It was three of us. It was a black guy, an Asian guy, and myself. The show was called NWC. I'll, I'll only say it once on the podcast. It, the title was Nigger Wetback Chink. <laughs> and with NWC, I toured the nation for nearly seven, eight years, creating dialogue and social change wow. through comedy. List game, quick. List some stereotypes that are commonly made about your ethnicity. Athletic comedian with a rap star career on the side. Internet programmer, math tutor, or computer analyst for some Fortune 500 company. Maid, janitor, grape picker. It really depends on what truck picks me up for the Home Depot in the morning. <laughs> SAT, 1600. 800. Hold on, hold on, hold up. What's an SAT? <laughs> Sports. Basketball. Soccer. Ping pong. <laughs> Women! Love them. 
Respect him. Pimple Miles! <laughs> Sorry. Raised by them. Wrote this play on a laptop. Wrote this play on a notepad. Learned this play phonetically. <laughs> Macho. Passive. Dangerous. Hardworking. 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 Oh, you oh, guys are hardworking. Uh, <laughs> strong family ethics. And it was in this um, very national tour that people were so obsessed over my personal journey that I decided to write it into a TV show. Mm. So this idea of the all-American high school kid whose world comes like crumbling down on the day he applies to go to college and discovers that he's not even an American, uh, I wrote it into a, a 30-minute script, which I've sold to, to CBS Studios, and together we're trying to get it on TV because that's what I want Amazing. to do to this conversation. I want to show these people are American in every aspect except one. And that's just the the papers. Um, tell me about your perspective of the word illegal. Thank you for asking mm-hmm. me that. Such a great question. Um, first of all, it's the wrong word to use. And it's designed to be that way, right? Many people violate laws or, or do legal act, uh, illegal actions, right? When we kill somebody... They're not illegal. They're they're a murderer, right? Right. But it, this is purposely done because when you call somebody illegal, you're criminalizing them. And being in this country without um, documentation is not a criminal offense. It's a civil offense. And that's a huge difference because when you criminalize somebody, what do you do? You take away the First Amendment right to free speech and you take away their First Amendment right to assemble, which is exactly what we were talking about, the, the Pew Hispanic Research Center. So if they, if they can't assemble and they can't unionize and they don't have free speech to speak about their stories and what they're going through, you're yeah. essentially keeping the labor force complacent, silent, and doing what they have to be doing. Oppress. Oppressed. Oppressed. Oppressed and working. So how would you phrase the title of being undocumented? Uh, I've I've started saying just so people can grasp the concept. I've I've started saying undocumented American, mm. uh, but definitely, definitely do not use the word illegal. It all you're doing is helping the oppression of these people. When in truth, what we're saying is we need to listen to the stories to hear their side of what's going on. And words matter. Words absolutely matter. They matter because there is no, in my opinion, there's no perfect language. Right, everyone brings. Um, their own baggage along with uh, words, right? Your own past, your own history. What is illegal? What what does that invoke? I love that. In and your own, there is no perfect language. And dictionaries don't um, give us definition. They only give us popular usage. We define words. So right now, you, I, your listeners are deciding to define what this word means. So much of the progressive movement, I feel, is about finding the words to describe a situation that invokes something other than what the right is trying to invoke, right? What is the right trying to invoke? Fear, uh, supremacy. And to me, this idea of linguistics is very interesting, especially in, a, in something like immigration that is complex. And I think that that's when you hear things like asylum seeker, And these words that we put together to try to invoke something different than what the right is trying to invoke, it's just very interesting how we choose. And I think 
you know, for me, being just the humanitarian, you know, UNICEF ambassador. And so to me, I relate to the words asylum seeker just because I know where, what the struggle is in their countries when they come here to find a new life. But I think we choose the words that we want to feel comfortable with. And I got to say, you hit it on the nose, especially when we're talking about migrant caravans. Mm -hmm. Those are words that were specifically chosen because these are not migrants. Like you said, they are asylum seekers. Mm -hmm. Why is that important? Because there is nothing illegal about seeking asylum. Right. Right. Exactly. So already you're confusing the conversation by using these other words. The asylum seekers that came over in the Trump-titled migrant caravan, I think what people don't realize is that that happens quite frequently. That was not, you know, Fox made Fox News made such a big deal out, out of it right before the election because I think that they were going for that side of trying to get people to vote in the midterms. I want to know who's in charge. They have to have some sort of think tank or something they where do. they're all sitting together and they're like, we're going to call this a migrant caravan and we're going to terrify people. Where do you right? think words like WNDs come from? Police involved the shootings. Like, where, where the hell? Cops killing citizens, right? Weapons of mass destruction used to kill. <laughs> like, these are words we're not using purposely. We should be talking not about building bigger walls, but about building longer tables. That's why the Youth Cinema Project is so important. We've essentially taken film graduate school and started at the fourth grade. What we do is not revolutionary, but the age that we do it at is. Because we realize that Hollywood is not going to develop our underserved communities, so we decided to do it ourselves. The way you address diversity is by going back to the drawing board and starting in fourth grade. The mission of the Youth Cinema Project is very simple. It's about closing the achievement gap in the classroom for our most underprivileged children and to close the opportunity gap in the entertainment industry for our communities of color. Scene five, cat, take two. The program involves two filmmaking mentors going into the classroom and they teach the entire process of film. So how to generate ideas, how to write the script, all the planning and pre-production, filming itself in production as well as post. They go through the process treating the students as colleagues rather than lecturing to them. Quiet outside! Sound? Camera? Rolling. Day one, scene two, take three, mark. Action! What do you think is the most effective way to change how immigration is discussed? Let's say you're sitting at a table with someone that believes differently than you do, someone that thinks that immigrants should be deported and not be given any rights. How do you discuss this issue with them to make them see the other side? <clears throat> um, that's interesting because I think as writers, especially writers who are socially conscious and who consider themselves like social justice warriors, um, it's important that we lead with our heart and not our politics. I, and and I, I have to wrestle with that every day in, in my writing and what I'm putting forward. forward. Um, the Norman Lear Center and Define American currently did a study about immigrants on television. And they found that immigrants on television are less educated, are more incarcerated, and commit more crimes um, than immigrants in real life. And I believe that 
that's one of the first things we have to tackle as an industry. We have to change immigrant representation on television. And how do we do that? Um, the Hollywood Reporter asked me to write an op-ed piece about it. And I said, it's very simple, just hire immigrant writers. <laughs> if, you, right. if you want more authentic, right. real stories, just hire immigrant writers. Representation is so Representation important. matters. The way that writers' rooms look now versus when I started at the office in 2004 is night and day. I was the only woman of color on our staff for the entire run of the show, I think. But things have changed a lot since then. We are just demanding more inclusive storytelling. Nobody wants to be the one voice and be singled out. If you have more than one person, you can get more layers, more nuance. Mm -hmm. You can tell different stories and dig deeper. So it's not all from one narrow lens. By the way, there's still writers' rooms out there that are super homogenous, yeah. super homogenized, and it's just kind of a, a kind of a secret. You know, it's like there's still rooms out there. So what you're missing out on is these other perspectives. You know, I looked around the the writers' room, and it was a lot of my fellow writers were white middle-aged guys. And uh, we were writing for a very diverse cast. And I just felt that perhaps some of the material we were writing was second or third hand. It wasn't as authentic as I wanted it to be. Let's say an issue about an Asian character or something like that comes up and you're the only Asian person in the room. Everyone just looks at you like, all right, speak for all Asian people, yeah, right? Is that okay? Yeah. It's tough because you don't, you know, you don't speak for everybody. The story of immigration is something that's just close to our hearts because it's how our families were formed, how our communities are formed, how our peer groups are formed. And it was um, just an honor to bring it to screen because we wanted to take immigration out of what we just refer to as the political. Take it out of just like, oh, this is the policy. This is why family separations happen, but really delve into how that affects people as well as understanding how expansive our community is and how faulty the borders we create are. There is power in stories. They connect us to our past, they guide us to our future, and they teach us concepts in a way that simply saying, this is how it is, never can. In my industry, we are in the business of telling other people's stories. As actors, we almost never play ourselves. Instead, we try to find the critical bits of universal truth in events happening to someone else. When we get it right, we connect with our viewers and pass the essence of that story on to an enormous audience. And this is usually true for writers and musicians and artists and historians. The stories we tell belong to others. This can be enlightening and educating and entertaining. It can express ideas in a way that helps people see tales as they fit into a broader tapestry. It's important work. Culturally, we absolutely need this. But a person telling their own story has an entirely different kind of power. The power of lived experience. The echo of authenticity that reverberates through each word. The ability to show an audience, this is what I feel. These stories, these first-person accounts are how our present will be defined in history. One of the things about being an activist is that you hear a lot of these stories. And, you know, nearly none of them come from a place of happiness. After all, we wouldn't need activism if... There were not serious problems that absolutely need fixing. But hearing the effects of these problems, told by those living them, 
inspires action. Last fall, I visited Parkland. I had already met a number of the families whose children and loved ones were murdered last February. It was their stories and their loss which forced me to take on gun violence in the NRA. But I had never met Lori Aladef until that day in October. Now, uh, I've shed a lot of tears over victims of gun violence. I've cried with families who lost loved ones to guns. Many people I consider dear friends share this unspeakable burden. Every single one of them affects me deeply. And even among these extraordinary people with terrible stories, Lori stands out. She came over to me and she hugged me in the middle of this event. And she hugged me and she told me about her daughter, Alyssa. There were hundreds of people around us, bands playing nearby, food trucks and vendors and press and the hubbub. But as soon as Lori started talking, the entire world disappeared. As we sobbed together, embracing mother to mother, her daughter Alyssa came to life for me. Lori having the courage to share her pain gave me an even deeper resolve to fight with everything I have against gun violence. And this has been true everywhere I go. Families told me stories in Flint that made me scream in anger. In Georgia, I heard from people who were not able to vote because their polls had been moved or shut down or did not have working voting machines. People tell me about their inability to access health care or safe housing or veterans' benefits. I watch the news. I understand that all these things are happening. But hearing it, being told what is happening by the people who live it, that's what changes the world. That's where the real power is. That is where our history is being written. It's being written with your stories. These lived experiences are the signposts that can lead us on the path to a better America. Please tell your stories because really it's in our response to those stories that we learn who we really are. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Sim Sarna and Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnik. It's edited by Josh Windage. Our production associate is Daniela Silva. Music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not Sorry. Sorry Not Sorry.